Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Yellow Chair Collective, the podcast. Today, we have one of my favorite episodes that's come out. It's one of my former professors from graduate school, Dr. Wendy Ashley. Dr. Ashley is an anti-racist, trauma-informed clinician, an educator, a social justice advocate, an author, a passionate speaker, training facilitator. She believes in justice, equity, diversity. She runs trainings. She's an ally and a critical thinker. We talk about how to incorporate it into therapy, what to expect out of therapy. And for those of you that are listening, some basic resources to help you begin your anti-racist work. And so without further ado, here is Dr. Wendy Ashley. So today we have you talking about a lot of the research and the work that you do working with BIPOC communities and family therapy, existential therapy. For people that don't know the importance of why this type of therapy is necessary for the BIPOC community, can you give people an overview as to the why and the what of what you do? We are thankfully in 2023 talking about like anti-racism and anti-oppressive yes. therapy in a way that we never did before, right? We talked about culture and we talked about difference, but we didn't talk about really like anti-racist therapy. And the truth is that therapy is grounded and founded on a very white Eurocentric Western kind of perspective. And so all of our theories, everything that sort of has come together has been developed by people that don't look like BIPOC folks. So the, it's not surprising that when BIPOC folks find their way into therapy, they're like, wait, what, what are we doing? And why are we just mm. talking about our problems? I think that none of that, because it's not culturally relevant. It's not culturally responsive. So this kind of therapy is important because A, it changes the content by which what happens in therapy and B, it changes the process. So how do we clients? How do we push in ourselves clinicians? How do we listen and hear and receive and respond to the things that clients say? And then what is our role in terms of guiding or directing or collaborating or any of those things? I think all of those change with an anti-oppressive anti trauma-informed approach. And, the, and so the reason for that is to engage populations that A, are invisible, that B, are invisible based on white Eurocentric research and are right. not covered in the books, and to make therapy work for people that aren't represented in those textbooks. Yeah. So a lot of the clients that we get at Yellow Chair Collective and a lot of the listeners that, that listen to this podcast are within the age range of 22 to 34 years old. And a lot of them are people of color who are entering therapy for the first time and don't know these words like existential and family therapy and how they really help them. And they're, in your words, like their, their relevance and amidst all of this invisibility and white Eurocentric therapy. And so can you tell people like the basics of what this is and how, and what's in it for them, for those that therapy are Therapy or existential therapy? Which one? Existential therapy. So existential therapy is lovely and it comes from philosophy. And I'm one of those people that just likes to talk about nonsense. So that interests me. Yeah. But existential therapy is lovely because the idea is that life itself, the existence of people is anxiety producing. And so mm. like day to day, like, like new jobs, like starting a new relationship, like post pandemic, like any kind of sort of normal transitions can be things that we embrace, or they can be things that cause us sub substantive amounts of anxiety. And so existential therapy says that by the relationship that we create with clients in the room can help them 
increase awareness about a few concepts, things like freedom, things like self-determination, things like responsibility, things like meaning, things like isolation, things like freedom. Like those are, according to existential therapy, those are the major points by which mm. you work with clients. And what I have found, and listen, existential theory is, existentialism is one of those old school white people theories. Mm. But the great <laughs> part about it is that, let's say I'm talking to a black man about death. That means something different in this context mm. than it might for like somebody who's back in the 50s who was white. When I talk about freedom to, a, to an Asian American person who just is dealing with all kinds of hate or isolation, like it brings up very different thematic issues. So the anxiety, real, right? Mm -hmm. Challenges, real. But how we contextualize them is where I think the anti-racist piece comes in. And that's why this kind of therapy, I feel like it's funny. To Back to your original question. One of the things, I get people of color all the time who are like, I don't know why I'm here. I could probably figure this out on my own, but I don't know what else to do. It's these themes, like how do I make meaning out of my life? How do I not isolate myself? How do I find real connection? That are very good reasons for therapy, but I think for a lot of people, because they're intangible, that's what existentialism is all about. It's about the intangible. I think for people, mm -hmm. people of color though, that feels wrong and I think it's upsetting. And so mm -hmm. a lot of, I think the therapy those of us who are doing it for folks who are in BIPOC communities is really like reassuring on the front end, like that this was mm -hmm. a good decision and being able to clarify what you might get out of it so that people feel like it's worth it. You said three things that really stood out to me. You said people of color that walk into your therapy practice feel like talking about these intangible things is wrong. Like Can you tell luxury, me what that, luxury, yeah. Right. It's like, it's, what did somebody say? like an extravagance, like as though I'm yeah. getting a massage every day, right? Like there's yes, this idea yes. that like only, and what clients have said is that this is what white people do. That's not what we do. Mm. So I, I do think that for a lot of people, it feels overindulgent, right? Like just to, man, I talk about my problems. And these are people who come to therapy, who then grudgingly spend money and don't, there's a, a dissonance that's created for people who come yeah. in. There's stigma, there's all, all sorts of historical beliefs around what is appropriate to talk about and what isn't and who are you supposed to talk to and who are your so all of that is in the room right and meanwhile you're coming in to talk about your your partner or your grief or whatever so a big part of the of the work for me and for therapists that do this kind of work is to really is to be curious about that right what are all the messages that you have in your head whether they're cultural messages or gender messages or family messages or your own beliefs around therapy and what therapy can do what are you wanting to get out of this so we can help you move forward and mm -hmm. i think slowing that process down is really important because if we skip forward let's do an assessment let's skip forward i think we miss out on real engagement with you talked so much about the systems that we're a part of and the contextual experience of an individual and i think that's something that we fail to realize in white Eurocentric types of therapies because assessments are often the main focus of the first few sessions yes. rather than inviting in what where the client is coming from and where the person is coming from. One of the questions I wanted to ask you today is how you handle instances of cultural misunderstanding or those microaggressions that might come up for the individual and even for the therapist in the room. I want to back up to what you said about assessment because I think mm -hmm. that 
think you can do them at the same time. I okay. think that I don't think you should. I think assessment is in, in, in part of engagement. As you're engaging people, you're also like noticing what they respond to, what they don't respond to, what works for them, what doesn't work. Like all of that is part of the process. And that is assessment, right? We're asking them direct questions. We're observing what their responses are, right? All of that stuff is part of the assessment. So it's not isolated. But right. understandings, cultural misunderstandings happen all the time. They can happen as simple, as something as simple as, for example, one of the things I do is I give my pronouns at the beginning, right? I'll tell somebody my name is Wendy Ashley, she, her, hers. And I do that to let people know across the board that I am interested in people's identities, no matter what, how they look. But if I get somebody's name wrong, or if I, or they don't understand why I'm giving the pronouns and they feel like I'm trying to ask them certain questions, or if I misunderstand, the first sort of way to, to be alerted to that is to be in clients. And it, cultural, you can't catch them all the time because people of color are really good at hiding that. But if you made a face every time you had a microaggression, that you'd be looking crazy all the time, right? So people are good at that, but you can catch it because people will hate or they'll be uncomfortable. And I will often, if I see something like that, I will say, did I just mess up? Or what just happened? And it comes up in a number of ways. So I have learned how to negate that by doing certain things, like really clarifying. Like I, I, as opposed to, it's so interesting, I'll give you an example. So one of the things that I'll ask people early on when I work with clients is, tell me a little bit about who you are. And they'll say, what are you talking about? And I'll say, I, I find that people seek me out for specific reasons, whether that's how I look, whether that's what I have to say. And maybe because you don't know me, those are part of my identity, right? Maybe it's because I'm a woman. Maybe it's because I'm a black woman, whatever. Tell me a little bit about all the things you're willing to share about who you are. And then I pause. And I already have an opinion because I'm a human of who I think they are. And the truth is that I'm wrong sometimes. So for example, I, because I am a black biracial woman, I get a lot of biracial people. Biracial people are interested in me sometimes. And so I have a few clients that have the exact same background as me. Like I have a few women who are in that age range, black women who are, who look like me, same background. And one of the clients I said, tell me, I said the same thing, tell me a little bit. And I was thinking, okay, black girl, like I see you. And she was like, I hate it when people assume that I'm black. Now I was like, uh oh, cause I had already made this assumption. And that is something that I could have easily said, right? So as a black woman, like I didn't say that thankfully, but that's something I could have, I was thinking it, right? It's my own judgment, my own bias. And I was thankfully able to be curious enough that she was able to say it. And we were able to talk about what that brings up for her when people make that mistake, right? And how, why people might do that. But those are examples of things that like, if you go by what you're, what you think you see, you're going to get it wrong. Yeah. I think I'm two years in and I tend to make assumptions too. And you talked about being able to be curious enough. And as someone that's still learning, we never really stop learning, to be honest. Never, ever. That's what I, that's something you taught me actually the first day. You were like, I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I remember you saying, but I digress. How do you build that? How do you build that muscle of curiosity with a client? Is there any books that you've read, courses you've taken, things that you've just done with this that have helped you get there? I wish this was in a book. I really do. Um, My saying, and I'm going to get it on a t-shirt. So if you know anybody that makes t-shirts, I want one. I believe that curiosity is the superpower. 
I really do. And what that means is that anytime, so like somebody will say something and we'll think, oh, that means this. Or someone will say, I'm scared of this. And we'll think, oh, we should do this. For me, anything that, that interests me, I'm curious about. And curiosity and interrogation are very different. And what I think clinicians need to realize is that on the front end, curiosity for clients who don't know us, it feels like interrogation. Tell me about who you are. Tell me about your background. Are you this? Are you that? No, that's not curiosity. That's a questionnaire. And that doesn't feel personal and it doesn't feel relational. So curiosity is really asking, being interested in people and contextualizing it and grounding it as to why, right? So I'm never going to ask you as my client, tell me about yourself just because I'm going to tell you I'm interested in who you are because if I'm going to be providing real therapeutic services to you that are actually helpful, I need to have a sense of what you're bringing to the table and what your concerns are and who you are. I can be better serve. I can service you better because of that. And I think that for people of color, that feels authentic versus a check mark, a check. So there, I don't know that there, there's probably a hundred great books. I haven't read any recently that have really been helpful. It's The two things that I would say that I built into my practice that have changed the quality of my practice, one is curiosity and being quiet long enough for the person to answer and not like jumping in. Because the second thing is to pause. I have to be curious and then I have to shut up. And pausing Mm. really makes you not jump so that you can give people time to not only give them time, but give yourself time to not get caught up. Yeah, that was so good. There's something refreshing about how you talk about these concepts because you don't just frame them in this equals that black and white concepts. I think you really provide historical data driven and experiential frameworks into how you do your work. And I guess my follow up to that is how do you address all of this with our cultural moment and with trauma? Because we've talked about BIPOC communities, we've discussed how someone comes into a room and how they are, what their being is. But these last couple of years, we've been through a lot of things. I can list all the things we've been through. And so how do you bring that into the secret sauce of what we do? I talk about this with people all the time because I am a believer that there's a few sort of, I don't think this is a one-time thing, right? I think that you do this consistently in the work. Like I said earlier, like one of the first things I will ask people is I'll ask them about who they are. I'll also invite them to be curious about me. Mm -hmm. I'll say, do you have any questions about who I am? Or at the end of every session, not every session, but the end of the first session, I usually say to to clients, so listen, I don't know if you expected me to look like if you saw my picture before you met with me, but I want to check in with how you feel about potentially working with somebody that looks and acts like and is me because you never know what you thought. I had a client Mm. once that was Eastern European and she heard my voice. This was before we like had so much internet. This was like 15, 20 (laughs) years ago. And she was like, I never met it. She was from Poland. She was like, there's no black people in Poland. I've never, she was a little traumatized. And I Mm. knew that there was something, but I didn't know it was that. So it was good. It's good to ask that. For the record, most people are not going to be like, I don't like black people. They're not going to say that, but they might say, I don't know if this is the right fit for me, which I think is a good time to ask it. But the other is just about the trauma piece is that 
I look at the ACEs study, right? The ACEs was a study done by Kaiser Permanente and the CDC. And it told us that even in the most wealthy white communities, there's trauma, right? It told us that. I would love to see the ACEs study done in a more black and brown community. I'd love to see that because the numbers would be skyrocketing. I say all that to say that I assume that nobody has made it to adulthood without some sort of trauma. So I'm very curious about what that is. And I will ask people, tell me about, can you tell me a little bit about traumas you've experienced? 99% of people of color in my experience never talk about racial trauma. Never. They'll talk about alcoholism. They'll talk about being molested. They'll talk about sexual assault, but they will not talk about racial trauma. And if you're waiting for that, it's going to be a long time. Unless it, unless like on their way to your office, they got pulled over and harassed by law enforcement. So I, and as part of the normal assessment, I will ask people, tell me a little bit about racial microaggressions. Tell me a little bit bit about messaging that you've received about who you are and how you look and how you fit in with your community. I'll ask those kind of questions. And then when things happen, I will be curious about it. When all the anti-Asian hate stuff was happening, when Monterey Park got shot up, if I'm seeing somebody, I will say there's a lot going on in the world right now. Is any of this impact? Are you bringing any of that to your session today? Like, those are the kind of questions I ask. If people don't want to talk about it or they don't feel like it's an issue, they'll say, no, it's shitty, but I'm good. Or they'll say, oh, my God, I can't stop thinking about that. I don't know if you know that that guy Twitch. He was a dancer. Yeah. And I Black clients for weeks could not stop talking about Twitch. So just those are what I like to do is just make sure that I touch, that there are things happening in the world that we can also talk about. We don't have to talk about them. It's your time. But if that is impacting you, that's something that, that I am here for. Mm. People run with it. Yeah. I One of the first things that I started thinking about when you talked about, this is our first session. Did you expect me to look like this? Or how? what did you think about this session? I had a client once tell me, I didn't expect that you would be so young and cute. And And thank you. Thank you. But how do you respond to that? How do you respond to when a client is honest with you and vulnerable with you about maybe their discomfort or their size at how you look in your positionality in a room as a therapist? People are not as often surprised. Listen, I've been in the game for 25, 27 years. When I was your age and young and cute, that was more (laughs) of an issue. But like, I, I do have clients now that I have a client right now that's, that has said to me, I, you are like the, you are like my ideal person. I want to date you. He doesn't know me like that. But again, therapy is intimate. It's very intimate. So like there is, there is a lot of honesty and vulnerability and transparency, which is what he wants in a relationship. So (laughs) early on, I would say consistently people, when I was younger and I didn't like work, I didn't have a family and I didn't have kids and I was working with parents and people would be like, you don't even have kids. You don't, that, that is a different conversation. And I encourage honesty for practitioners that my response is always, if let's say you said, I didn't know you'd have curly hair. One time I had longer hair and in the picture I had shorter hair. And someone said to me, someone said to me, wow, your hair looks different. And I paused and my response was, does that change anything for you? So I am responsive to whatever it is that comes up. And I'm curious. I think that's where curiosity is helpful is that if someone, when I used to work with kids and someone would say, oh, do you have any kids? And if I didn't, I would say, 
I didn't. But I would then say, is that a deal breaker for you? These are very real responses that I think are essential if we're going to create real relationships. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. So we still have a couple questions that okay. I want to ask you, but Please. I want to be respectful of time because we're, no, we're, we're 25. You're good? Okay. When clients are navigating these identities and societal messages and you're helping them see, oh, I, I didn't know it was okay to talk about microaggressions or there might be a look of shock. How do you begin to help them put one foot in front of the other and begin to reach this place of self-awareness about their own space in the world? Self-awareness is deep, right? Some of this has to do with messaging that people have gotten, whether that's cultural or gender or religious. There's a lot of layers to it. So I'll give an example. I had a client a few years ago who was working in a at an internship and she said that they were like rude to her, right? This is what she described. And as she began to describe it more, it was very clear that it wasn't just about them being rude. It was about them like racially profiling her. And I didn't say that sounds like racial profiling Im immediately. But I, but what I did say as I listened to it is I said, okay, so I'm hearing that she's rude to you, but it sounds to me like there's some racial elements to this. Do you, is that your experience? And she was like, yeah, but I don't want to be. So there's that, right? And so for me, the work is peeling back the layers. Okay. What if, like, how would you know if it was racial profiling? It doesn't, she doesn't say, okay, but no, no, but what, how do you know? How do you experience it? What happens for you? And historically, what have you done when you are racially profiled, right? What, so it's really about, is it okay that I feel like this? Is it okay that I'm saying this out loud, right? Can we talk about the feelings? Because for a lot of people, that's a no. We can't talk about those feelings. We can't say that out loud. We can't say anything bad about somebody else. We gotta be, have gratitude that we have a job, right? There's that kind of thing. But then after a while, once there's room, like there's space in the room, we can talk about it, we can look at it, we can say, what if your boss is a bigot, but she's also a really nice woman who's also like a bigoted kind of a few other words we would use. What if she's both of those things? And then we hold space for that. Over some time, there is then room for me to say to a client, what do you think you want to do with this? I pause. I got to pause. What do you think you want to do with this? I don't know. I probably just shouldn't work there. Do you feel powerless in terms of how you resolve this? If you walked away from there today, would you feel okay not saying anything? Does it matter that you say something or not? Tell me a little bit about other times where you've said something and it's gone terribly wrong or you haven't said something and you felt really bad because that is that underlies all this stuff anti-racism is really about three things and i'm bringing it back to this because i think it's about self-awareness like you said a few minutes ago it's about action-oriented steps and it's about accountability so if we can bring those in by modeling them and talking about them, I think we change the context of the work, which I think is very helpful in these kind of situations. This is the type of conversation that I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast are going to like love because we recently had a Stanford professor come on the show and she talked about her positionality as a woman of color, as a first generation immigrant, as someone that had all of these titles and yet still felt human amidst trauma. And a lot of the messaging. Yeah. And so for you as a human, how do you, I guess I'm asking as a selfish question, how do you take care of yourself while also taking care of people? It's really hard. Let me yeah. answer that in a second. I want to go back because 
you were asking a few seconds ago about just about like people being surprised. And I don't get that so much with clients really because it's 2023 and I have a website. And so people are yeah. like, I want someone that looks like her. At the beginning, mm -hmm. it was not like this, but it's like this now. But you know where I get that is in the class. Mm -hmm. I get people that call me by my first name, which they, and they wouldn't do that for like a white professor. And I'm not young anymore. So I'm like, really? At this point, we're still doing that. Mm -hmm. They challenge me differently, even though I very clearly know what I'm talking about in this realm. So that that's a thing. And I have to manage that myself. But self-care is really hard. All of the pieces that I do, right? I do, I teach and then I practice and then I do like trainings. I do a lot of justice, anti-racism, equity, diversity and inclusion trainings for like organization. And all of that is service. And I'm a parent. I got two kids. I got teenagers, which makes me want to lay on the floor under the bed. And so for me, one of the, one of the, one of the best self-care methods is boundaries. Like I really have to have a boundary where I turn off everything and I am present with my husband and my children. I have to move my body some kind of way. I need to do yoga. I need to have a practice where I'm present in my body. That's for me. I have to stop and do nothing sometimes. What's so funny Helen, because when we talk about, we talk about self-care, people think I got to go work out and I got to eat healthy as though this is a diet. And that's no, that th those are great and they're helpful, but those are not, sometimes the best self-care is not what you do. It's what you don't do. A lot of people think that self-care is a healthy diet and exercise and eating well. I have, we have a lot of healthcare workers that listen to this show and a mm. lot of people who are women of color, actually 78% of our listeners are women of color and they're gen, I think they're early gen Z to gen X. And a lot of them will say, I can't just do nothing. I can't Why just. Why not? That's my question. Why not? Yeah. What happens if, so we have, now you got me excited. We have this culture, this hustle grind culture that says, unless you're productive, by the way, this is the group that has the most resistance this Gen Z population or millennial population, they have a lot of resistance to like rules and structure and working and all the things, right? But I find it very interesting. Like what do they think happens? Which is what I do with my clients all the time. What happens if you stop moving? What do you think happens? Here's where I go with that. If you are a person of color, your nervous system is on hyper arousal mode. You are hyper alert all the time because hypervigilance is a necessary part of maintaining awareness of what goes around, what goes on around you. So if your nervous system is always activated, you need to have time for your parasympathetic nervous system to find you balance. And it doesn't happen when you're doing shit. Running is not going to make it happen. Boxing is not going to make it happen. Sitting your ass down and being quiet will make it happen. And that's the piece that I don't think that anybody helps them to hear, which I think is really important. I didn't want to, I interrupted your last thought when you were talking about taking care of yourself and self-care. How does that happen for you beyond just moving your body and exercise and sitting down? It happens for me in transitions. Uh, it's really important to me to create transitions between things. So like in the morning before I work, I used to just start work like really early and work all day long, right? And then just jump into my life and I, it was burning me out. So I create spaces. Like I, I have like an hour before I start seeing people where I have time to check my emails and I have time to write things and I have time to think about what I'm doing and maybe a little meditation. 
And I take a real lunch break every day. Where I'm not working while I'm eating. And I take a break at the end of the day where I stop and I have time for either reading or thinking or sitting outside with my dog. And let me tell you, if those didn't happen, I wouldn't be able to parent my children. I wouldn't be able to be a partner for my spouse. Those things are essential in me. I like to say just rejuvenating myself so that I can be present in my personal life. It's so refreshing to hear you say that because you do a lot of stuff. Like I, I was a student of yours. I was like, how does she do everything? And now I, people ask me the same question and I still don't think I've figured it out. Like this whole taking care of myself thing. I come from Gen Z. I'm like really early Gen Z and it's really hard to just sit on my ass and just so, not do anything. See, see, look where you went with that. Sit on my ass. That sounds like lazy, right? That's the, mm. that's what we do. The same bucket that says therapy is overindulgent is the same bucket that says sitting down is laziness. Mm. I reframe it all the time. I would encourage you to reframe it, that this is yes. not laziness. This is you recovering from your day, which you need, especially if you're an empath. Empaths yep. really need to wring the sponge out so that they don't carry that into the rest of their life. And you're allowing your parasympathetic nervous system to relate to. It is really almost like a brain chemistry issue mm. that you need to do this. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to implode from the inside. And that's really unappealing. Last question for you before we go. What are some beginner anti-racist resources that you recommend for people who are interested in doing some of this work? Ibram Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist is the best. I have a ton of books. I'm trying to think of what I loved. I love his the most. I read so much. I just wrote a textbook, so that should be coming out next year. Based on all the things I'm telling you, like the book basically covers how to be a good clinician while also positioning oneself as anti-racist. So for anyone that wants to do this, start with, with Kendi's book. There are so many books out there that I can get you a list, a reading list of some things. But I would say start with that one, because unless you embody what it really means to be an anti-racist, all this is going to be, here's what I don't want. I don't want people to walk away from this thinking, okay, so what are all the tools? Nothing tells you all the tools. You have to learn how to be this way before you can do this way. And if you can be this way, then you can show up this way in your practice. And then get my textbook like in a year when it comes out. I can't wait. We should have you back on in a year so we can promote I, it for you. I, I would love to. It would be an honor. Let me tell you, the chapters in this book are delightful. Like I have a chapter in it on like being a savior, like saviorism. Like that's so fantastic. Good. There's a chapter yeah. in there on, there's, cha there's sections on trauma and healing. It's a magical book. I can't wait for it to come out. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Ashley. Thanks for Appreciate having me. You. And I'll say this one more thing, because I love Irv Yalom. If you want something to read that gives great examples on how to be a good existential therapist, Yalom is an old white dude. He's still my boyfriend. I love him. But he's, like a, <laughs> he's like 80. But lying on the couch, start with that. You can thank me later. Lying on the couch might be one of my favorite books of all time. And of course, the group psychotherapy book. Just saying you can't go wrong with a little Yalom. Beautiful. So group psychotherapy. Help. Yeah. Group and psychotherapy lying group lying on the couch, how to be an anti-racist. Yes. Those are the three, two Yalom and one candy winner, winner. Amazing. Thanks, Dr. Ashley. Thanks for having me.